Liam and Elise very much for reading those. It's well worth um, having those passages open. If you did get a handout on your way in, uh, they're in that handout. And also there's an outline of uh, where we're heading as we look at that together. I have to apologise in advance. I have a, um, well, a slightly croaky voice because uh, while on holiday, I uh, broke or injured my rib uh, wrestling a bear. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I broke or injured my rib on a children's ride at the Easter show. <laughs> um, uh, and there you go. So slightly embarrassing. There was some debate leading up to going on the ride. It had clear instructions of the largest person sit on one particular seat. And uh, well, let's just say we didn't heed that advice. And uh, the, the, the rib is the result. Um, if we've not met before, and I do see some faces I, I don't know, uh, my name's Andrew Rees, the Senior Minister here at Warunga Anglican. This is a very exciting day for us as we uh, embark next week on these new gatherings. And we've been working our way through Mark's Gospel, and we're going to continue that this morning. And it's a brilliant passage to have in our minds and our hearts as we set out on these gatherings together. So let me pray and ask for God's help as we uh, look at uh, what Liam's just read out for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you love us and in your love you speak to us that we may know you and know ourselves and know how to live rightly before you. So we pray for humble hearts now. We pray you help us listen well as you speak to us. We pray that you would change us for your glory and for our good. Amen. So Mark chapter 8 from verse 27. And uh, if you are new, we have been working our way through Mark's gospel and we're up to about the halfway point. And uh, Mark's gospel, as we've been looking at it, is written to help us see Jesus, to help, him, uh, to help us see him plain as day, to, to be really clear about who he is. And when I say help us see him plain as day, the reality is the more we see of him, we realise that there's nothing plain about him. Uh, to quote uh, Napoleon, with Jesus, everything is extraordinary. And I wonder if, uh, if you've been here as we've gone through these chapters, you will have seen extraordinary things about the Lord Jesus. But what I love about our passage, and this is great for those who are new and are jumping in at this point in Mark's gospel, today's verses are a bit like the Cliff's Notes for Mark's gospel. Does anyone remember Cliff's Notes uh, from school? Shame on you. Uh, if you use Cliff's Notes. They were the what you read. If you didn't want to actually read the book, you just uh, read this little summary and it told you uh, what the book was about. And in many ways, these verses do that for us. Uh, I do commend Mark 1 to 8 to you. So if you have not had a chance to read it, it'll take about 45 minutes to catch up to where we're at. But here's what we're going to see in Mark 8, verse 27 onwards. Three things about Jesus that we must know and three things that we must do in response to those. Here they are, just so that you've uh, got them and you can see them on the outline there. Firstly, this, of Jesus. He is no mere prophet. He is heaven's king, so repent. Second, he is no mere worldly king. He is heaven's king, so believe. And finally, he has not walked a mere worldly path. He has walked heaven's path, so follow. Well, let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, this one. He is not just a prophet. He is heaven's king, so repent. Eight chapters, as I said before, have led up to showing us who Jesus is. And so it's time for the obvious question. Do you see it there in verse 27? Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. You see, from a Jewish standpoint, they, they knew that God's promised king was coming, but, but it seems that some of them had assumed that uh, in the line of prophets that would come before the king, that maybe Jesus was just another one of those prophets, that the king had not yet come. He was just a prophet. In one sense, uh, for the Jewish people, that conclusion suited them. Uh, if Jesus was merely a prophet, not God's promised king, then while they would listen to a prophet, and the Old Testament shows us that they did listen to the prophets, they'd also learned to do this with the prophets, ignore the prophets, ignore what they were saying and do what they wanted. And Jesus has hinted that as we've gone through Mark's gospel. Do you remember back in Mark chapter 6, he, he said in his own home territory, he said, a prophet is without honour amongst his own. And so if they're viewing him as a prophet, they know what to do with prophets, and that is to, well, ultimately ignore them. Even worse than that, when we get to Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus will tell a, a, a story, a parable, uh, uh, essentially showing the pattern of what the Jewish people, God's people, did with the prophets. One after another was sent to God's people to remind them that they were God's people, and they killed one after another after another, as they would ultimately God's own king. And so there's the pattern. Uh, some of the Jewish people have assumed, well, perhaps Jesus is just a prophet. We'll listen, and then we'll ignore, and then we'll deal with him as we choose. Now, I want to say that for us as a non-Jewish audience, most of us, uh, the same temptation is there with Jesus. As we read through Mark's gospel, as we hear Jesus' words, we hear his commands, it would be easy to hold him as just another wise voice that we would measure alongside other wise voices and words that we hear, that that's the way you work with Jesus' words, that you weigh his words alongside, well, other words, as if they're all the same. Now, that works, and it is, I think, unimpeachably fair to do that with human words, if that's what we're talking about. If all we have here, as Jesus speaks to us in the gospel, is just another human word, another angle on life, well, that would be true, but if the one speaking to us is God and King then it's entirely untrue. And that's been Mark's, gosp Mark, Mark's gospel's testimony about Jesus all the way through. If you remember back in uh, chapter 1, heaven, uh, the, if you like, the, the gates of heaven opened from the sky and, and the God of heaven said this of Jesus, this is my son. This is not just a prophet, this is my son. And if uh, you jump forward in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, now uh, we're going to see this next week, he'll say it again. He'll say, this is my son, and then he'll add this, listen to him. It's not just another human voice. Listen to him. And then we have Peter's conclusion. Jesus has asked, uh, what do other people think of his identity? And then, then Jesus turns and asks Peter directly, okay, who do you say I am? And here we have the answer. You are the Messiah. You are God's promised king. Now, if that's the reality, and this is the first reality we're seeing in these, these verses... Uh, then it demands a response from us. And I wonder if you remember it. The response has been uh, uh, given to us. The spoiler was right there at the start of uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said it himself, The king is here. Repent. Surrender. Surrender. That's what you do before this king and his word. Uh, you don't stand as an equal with the king. Uh, you repent of self-rule. You humbly heed as he speaks. That's how to respond to the king. And there is, of course, in our world coming a day when absolutely every eye 
will see that he is king. And there'll be absolutely no doubt on that day. There'll be no confusion. There'll be no seeking second opinions, no measuring it alongside other words. We will know it for sure. Uh, This is what Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 says. When we see him on that final day, we'll fall down as though dead. There'll be no equivocation about it. None whatsoever. He is the king. Mark's gospel, as we've read it, I wonder if you've uh, picked this up as we've been reading through, has been written to show us that reality so that before that day we would repent. We would humbly bow the knee before this king. Here's the second reality that we need to see. He is no mere worldly king. He is heaven's king. So believe. Peter's just identified who he is. You are the king. You are God's promised king. And then you, you see there, if you've got the passage in front of you, verse 31, Jesus now speaks very plainly, we're told, about what sort of kingship he has. Verse 31, he then began to teach them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now that's unexpected, at least for Peter. Uh, This does not at all compute with his idea of uh, if he is, as Peter has just declared, you are the king, the one we've been waiting for all these centuries. You are God's promised king. And now Jesus has said, well, here's how the king is going to rule. And so Peter says, no, no, that's not my king. That's not how this works. Now, if Peter thought his quiet rebuke, and you see he subtly sort of takes Jesus aside and says, you know, maybe we should uh, rethink that plan. That's not the plan of the king. If he thought that was going to gain some traction with Jesus, he was sorely mistaken. Jesus has heard this kind of line before from Satan. I wonder if you remember that from the the very first chapter of Mark's gospel, and Mark just hints at it, but the other gospels uh, write more about it, that, that Jesus, just as he began his earthly ministry, was tempted by Satan to choose a different path, to not take the path that we have in front of us here. And yet he rebukes Satan, and now he rebukes Peter. Do you see there? Jesus fires back in verse 33. Jesus turns... And he looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's hearing the same voice he heard back in chapter 1. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of humanity. And what we have here is uh, really a clash of kingdoms, a a clash of perspectives between worldly kingdoms and, and the heavenly kingdom. I mean, worldly rule, worldly power, glory comes by using your strength to impose it on others, to subject others. That's how worldly power ultimately works. Just ask Vladimir Putin. Just ask our federal politicians who seem obsessed in, in the last week or so to talk about how ready they are for war. This is what human power looks like. Just ask yourself, myself, about our own power plays in our workplaces or in our families or our community groups or, heaven forbid, even in church life. Worldly power is about strength and self-rule and self-interest and winning it over others. But Jesus unmasks that sort of power here in all its ugliness and in all its origins. It's satanic. In Mark 1, Satan tempted Jesus in the desert to choose that different path to the throne. But Jesus rebukes him and now he rebukes Peter. There is no other way. Peter, it seems, is brought into the 
the Jewish ambition and the longing that they had for the promised king from heaven, who he'd come and he'd unshackle them from the power of Rome. At last, they'd be free of their oppressor and, and Jesus would rule finally with strength and power and nothing would stop him. And even better than that, if you jump forward to Mark chapter 10, they would rule with him at his right and left side. That's how he thought it would go. And in one sense, they, they had reason to hope for that because I wondered, did you hear it as Elise read Daniel 7 for us? Uh, there, there is that picture that the heavenly king would come and he would sweep aside all other human power and finally he would rule and he would rule forever. And Peter was up for that. He was in for that plan. But if only he read on in Daniel 7, if you read on in Daniel 7, you see that this heavenly rule would be established not through exerting power over others, but through suffering. Heaven's king is the antithesis of worldly kingdoms. And, and this is really important for us to grasp, but I wonder if you see it there in verse 31, that's not an accident, it's God's plan. The key word in verse 31, do you know what the key word is? It's the word must. The king must suffer, says God. As he had declared way back in, uh, let me read Isaiah 53 verse 7 to you. This is what it says. He, speaking of the king who would come, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He must suffer. Uh, the king must be rejected. As God had declared again, Isaiah 53, this time verse 3, he was despised and rejected by humankind. The king must be killed. Again, not an accident. It's God's plan, as he declared in, in verse 8 of Isaiah 53. He'd be cut off from the land of the living. He'd be assigned a, a grave with the wicked. And then this, most gloriously of all, he must rise again. That's not an accident. It's a plan. As God declares in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, and after he has suffered, he will see the light of life again forever. None of this is an accident. Isn't that great? This is heaven's king pursuing heaven's business relentlessly. And, and again from Isaiah 53, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was the plan. I was reading that this week again, that, that famous passage in Isaiah 53 and seeing it in the light of Mark 8 here. And the thing that came into my heart is thank God that that, that is heaven's plan. And thank God that that plan is unthwartable. Thank God, uh, as God says to us in Isaiah 49, my purpose will stand and I'll do as I please. On the lips of a human king, that is terrifying. On the lips of God, the king, it is glorious. Because do you know what pleased him? Well, Mark 10, verse 45, the son of man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That, that's our gospel. This is heaven's king delivering heaven's plan. And don't forget it because... The reality is our whole eternity hangs on that plan. Uh, it is as the old hymn sings, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And again, flashing forward to that final day, there is coming a day when we will spend eternity celebrating that this plan was followed through. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, we'll sing. Uh, one final reality to see, one final response to make, and it's perhaps where it touches down most for us. He did not walk a worldly path, but heaven's path, so follow. You see there, verse 34, having declared what sort of king he would be, he, he called the crowd to him along with the disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, 
take up their cross and follow me. You know, as we uh, read Daniel 7 earlier, I, I made the point that if you read on, that you actually see that heaven's king is purposed to suffer. That's how he'll come to his, his throne. And reality is, if you read Daniel 7, we see that it's not just heaven's king, but the people of heaven, the people of the king who will suffer as well. We're, we're called in Daniel 7, the saints of the most high. And again, it's not an accident that that's the path ahead of us. It's, it, it, it's heaven's king and now heaven's people doing the business of heaven. This is the business of heaven. And I reckon here, uh, as we mark the moment that we launch out as a church family into these new gatherings, all of them purpose to proclaim this king to, to the community around us. Let, let me ask you this. Are you up for following heaven's plan in those gatherings? It's not a plan for business as usual. It's not a plan to lead us to sort of cruise ship North Shore Christianity. It's not a, a plan that will change nothing. It's not a plan where my preferences, your preferences will prevail. It's meant to look like this. In fact, verse 34, do you see what the key word is? It's the same word again, must. Must. If we are to be the saints of the Most High in Warunga, and that's our calling, if we are to follow after heaven's king, if we're to identify him with him rather than the world, then verse 34 is Jesus speaking plainly about the path ahead of us. Probably if I was to pick out two key words from, from that verse, they, they would be these words. It's about denying yourself. That is denying your, the old self, the self that had faith in itself, the self that had faith in this world uh, rather than the new self that came into being when when in repentance you put your faith in king jesus rather than in yourself but i uh, i know and i'm sure you know uh, even though that new self is coming to life in us the old self remains doesn't it and keeps saying no this world is my home this my hope is here my life is here that's the old self i wonder if you feel the tug of that as you go about life. I wonder if you feel the tug that, of the self that wants the whole show to be about you, your comfort, your success, your esteem, your opportunities, your choices. <coughs> Jesus says you've got to deny that self. That is not you now that by faith you have come to him. And I want to finish by giving you the three reasons Jesus gives us here in this passage why we should not hesitate to do that as we launch out into these gatherings. Here they are. Firstly, verse 35. Here's the first reason why we shouldn't hesitate to follow him. Because being with him is where life is. Uh, the myth sometimes of the Christian life is, the Christian life is the missing out life, the dull, grey, drab sort of life, uh, joyless life. That's the Christian life. Uh, Self-denial, that's what it sounds like. Uh, our world argues that the self that we're called to deny here in this passage is the real lover of life. Life to the full, that is. The, the one who's actually committed to joy, to experience things, to, to pursue our preferences, all of those things. That's real life. And I reckon we will feel that pressure for all of our life. Uh, for those who are at school age here, uh, especially upper high school and in those post-high school years, there will be for you a sharp divide as you go along following Jesus where choosing to follow Jesus and heeding his calls uh, on your life will look dull and drab to your mates. That's the reality. And for parents here, 
the pressure to keep offering your children opportunities instead of committing to come to church or Friday night fellowship will be relentless. And you will feel that to ignore those opportunities is to deny them life itself, at least life to the full. And for the seniors, there is a relentless pressure in our culture to think that life now that you've reached your senior years and you've retired and you're free from the pressures of work and perhaps the pressures of raising children, life is about adventures and experiences and comfort that wasn't possible when you were younger. And giving yourself instead to God's plans in the local church will, will seem like missing out when time is limited. But you see what Jesus says? If you're seeing things that way, you're not seeing clearly. See what verse 35 says? If you're trying to grasp at these things as if they're life, uh, you, you've missed life. But if with Jesus you're prepared to lose such a life and follow after him, you will find life. I wonder if you're clear on what life is. I mean, how would you define life? Life is my career or my family, or my health, or my wealth, or my recognition, or my comfort. And if I lost those things, then my life would be diminished. But that ain't true life. This is what John 17 verse 3 says of life. This is life, this is eternal life, speaking of God, that they may know you and know the one you sent. Life is about being with Jesus. And so when he calls, come follow me, we go, because that's where life is going. We identify with him, unashamedly identify him, just like we'd be unashamed to breathe oxygen to have life. We follow him because he's where life is. Here's the second reason he tells you to, to follow him. Verse 36 and 37, because all the wealth in the world cannot buy your soul, but he can and he has. I mean, take that in. I love these verses. Take in the profound value your soul has to God. And taking the relative worthlessness of absolutely everything else in this world that we could pursue or acquire. Your body and your soul are not your own. You were bought at a price, we're told in the scriptures. That they belong to Jesus. He who fearfully and wonderfully made you has now fearfully and wonderfully saved you. That's your net worth. And it, it's not a variable value like the sort of cost of living index. It's, it's permanent. It's set at the price of his blood. His life for yours. And truth is, without that price paid, you and I remain enslaved in our sin. You and I remain under God's wrath. And there's not no amount of wealth that we can marshal in this world that can get us out of that situation. It is fascinating as we move towards another federal election just how obsessed our country is with wealth. As we head to this election, our concerns are the cost of living and inflation rates and interest rates. Christian, do those things worry you? Now, you may say, of course they do. Don't be so naive, Andrew. That's the real world. Well, I love that real world. I love economics. It's, it's brilliant. It's the most exciting science of all. <laughs> but even if, even if recent trends prevail even further, we remain one of the richest countries in the world, and you remain in one of the richest parts of one of the richest countries in this world. And, and so let me ask you, verse 36 style, how much do you think you need our city says there's no figure on that. The pursuit is relentless. But all of it, even if you have the whole world of it, cannot fill even one soul. So how much is enough for your soul to be satisfied? 
You know, there's the Sunday school answer to that question, then there's the Monday morning answer to that question, and they're very different answers. But here's the truth. You need much less than you think, but much more than you could ever offer. Uh, Leo Tolstoy tells this story, a short story of how much land does a man need? And it's this brilliant story of you, you pay a thousand rubles and you can, uh, from daylight to sunset, you can sort of run across a, across a field and get as much land, as long as you're back by sunset, you can have that whole land. And so it tells the story of this man who goes way out and he's covered this huge area and then he realises it's almost sunset, so he sprints back and just gets back there in time with great relief that all this land is his and then he drops dead. <laughs> and then we have the answer to the question. He needs six foot by two foot. <laughs> you need much less than you think in the end. But... Truth is, to have your soul free, unstained by sin, unafraid of judgment, unbound by death, will cost you more than you or I could muster. Verse 36, you cannot give anything in exchange for your soul, but he can, and he has on that cross. Jesus says, follow me, and as we do, we find that he is our ransom, paid in full. One final thing as we close and as we prepare to sing our final song. Here's the final reason to follow him. Because life is to be lived for the forever pleasure of heaven rather than the fleeting praise of this world. Verse 38. Why follow Jesus? Because that's what pleases the Father. You and I live with two potential audiences on, before us. Uh, the world, which is, we're, we're told here, turned its back on God. Uh, or this audience, do you see it there in verse 38? The Son of Man, the one we're following, and his glorious Father and all their angels looking on as we live. The world, well, you can live for the world and you'll gain much. But in the words of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount, if that is our pursuit, then we will have received our reward in full. This short-lived treasure, these few milestone achievements that will fade over time, the house, the career, the family, the holiday, the opportunities. And if we do live for this world, and with all the resources behind us in this part of the world, you'll probably do brilliantly. The audience of this world will admire you for it. But, verse 38, do you see it there? The one we were made for, heaven's king, will not see success, but a life marked by compromise, and second-guessing and bet-hedging and doubting his word and refusing to follow him because in our hearts we've decided, here is my home. So in the midst of all of that audience of the world, Jesus calls in our passage here, knowing how prone to wander we are, knowing his grace is sufficient to carry us as we follow him, and he says, come follow me. And each day that we heed his voice, our longing to please the world will fade and our longing to please him will grow stronger yet. And that's what we're made for. I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to ask the band to come up as we prepare to sing our final song. So let's pray together and then we'll sing Rock of Ages. Let me pray. Riches we heed not, nor vain empty praise. You are inheritance now and always. You and you only, first in our hearts, high King of heaven, our treasure you are. And so not the labour of our hands can fulfil your law's demands. Could our zeal no respite know? Could our tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. 
you must save and you alone. Lord Jesus, help us to follow you. Amen. Let's stand together and sing Rock of Ages.